As we begin this morning, think of a time that someone showed a great act of love towards you. This is not ordinary love. This is not normal. It's not expected or deserved. Your day or maybe your life was changed by such an act of love. Was it a gift that someone gave? Maybe you were in need of money, clothing, food, and someone sent you or gave you exactly what you had been praying for or asking for. Was this great act of love shown in the words that someone said, their words uplifted you when you had been depressed or discouraged? Was it someone helping you to do something that you couldn't do for yourself? Or was this great act of love simply time, someone spending quality time with you? I would expect that each of us has been shown an act of great love within our lives. As we begin this morning and as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper to celebrate and to remember the death of Jesus Christ, we encounter the greatest act of love that has ever been shown, that has ever been displayed on this earth. I submit to you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have already experienced this act of love. And if you have not, I submit to you that this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this act of love is yours as well. So Romans 5, 6 through 11 is our key text this morning, so you can keep open your Bibles, and we're only going to look at half of the text that Pastor Dave read for us, and we're going to look at Romans 5, 6 through 11, and reflect upon it, and see what it has to say as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. So let me read this again for us, Romans 5, 6 through 11. It reads, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. By the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this text comes in the middle of a chapter in which Paul is speaking of the peace that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, because of justification by faith. He then goes on to speak of the hope that we can have in God. In Romans 5, 5, it reads, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul makes the point that the hope that we have, or our hope, will not fail us. As he says, And hope does not put us to shame. Our hope in God and in salvation in the future, that God will bring about salvation in the future, will certainly come about. Our expectation in God will be accomplished. To make this firm in the Romans' minds, he tells them that they have been given God's love in two ways. And this is proof of the love, proof that this hope will not fail them, that it will surely come about. The first manifestation of God's love in their life is the love that has been given through the Holy Spirit and dwelling in them. As he says in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Romans, he's saying, have an inner conviction within their hearts that God loves them and will do what he has said to do to them. The second manifestation of God's love is what we find in our text this morning in verses 6 through 11. 
So the theme of this passage, or the theme for this morning, is that Paul presents to us the magnificence of God's love in Christ's death. Again, that's Paul presents to us the magnificence of God's love in Christ's death. As he says in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I submit to you that we see this in three ways. Paul presents to us the magnificence of this loving act that God has showed to us. He presents this to us in three ways. The first in which is that Paul describes the recipients of this act. Paul, pre Paul presents to us the recipients of this act of love. Second, he presents to us in speaking of the rarity of this act of love the rarity of this act. And then thirdly, we're going to see Paul presents this magnificence of God's love in that he presents or gives to us the results of this act. So the recipients, the rarity, and the results of this act of love. So first, Paul presents to us the magnificence of God's love in Christ's death by describing the recipients of this act. If you look with me at Romans 5.6, Romans 5.6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So here in this verse, we see two ways in which Paul describes the recipients. And then in the remaining verses, we'll see two more ways. So four ways in which we see these recipients described in the verses in our passage this morning. The first way the recipients are described is that they are helpless. Helpless. As he says in verse 6, for while we were still weak. And before we look at any of these ways, before we look at the four ways in which Paul describes the recipients, it's important to see that here Paul is saying that Christ died for us. As he says, for while we, we meaning him and the Romans, all of these ways of describing the recipients can be applied to both Paul and the Romans, but also they can be applied to us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this word weak or helpless is the first way in which the recipients are described in our passage. And weak here means that they are helpless, they are unable, they are incapable, and they are powerless in changing their spiritual condition. Again, they're helpless, unable, incapable, and powerless in changing their spiritual condition. They were stuck in their sin and they could not change that state they were in. We see the same concept in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read. The same concept of weak or helpless is found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here we see the same concept of helpless in our spiritual condition, as we see Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. And Paul is simply using the metaphor of being physically dead to show that before they were saved, they were unable to change their state, just like someone who is dead is not able to become alive. So they were spiritually dead, or they were helpless in their condition. I'll give you another illustration of this helpless. So the recipient is helpless. And I think of stories that I've heard from those who go to the gym. So maybe this has actually happened to you. So there are those that bench press. And if you don't know what a bench press is, it's simply a, a flat seat in which you lay back on your back. 
and you extend your arms upright and grab onto the bar above you with weight on it. You lift off, you lift off this weight from the rack and you bring the weight down to your chest. Now often, if you're using a decent amount of weight for yourself, you use what's called a spotter. Someone to stand behind you and lift the bar if you cannot lift it back up. And I've heard from those that go to the gym, I don't really go to the gym myself, but for those that do go to a public gym, I've heard of those that have experienced someone that does not use a spotter and have either worked themselves too hard or they've overestimated their strength and put too much weight on the bar and lifted it down and they just cannot lift the bar back up. Usually they end up yelling for help or someone walks by, notices what's going on and helps them lift that bar back up. But by themselves, they are absolutely helpless, unable, incapable, and powerless to lift that bar back up. That is exactly what we were in our spiritual condition, helpless in changing it. The second way of describing the recipient is that they were evil. If you look with me back at verse 6, Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So not only were they incapable of doing anything about their sinfulness or their spiritual state, but they were unworthy. They were unworthy of having anything done to change that condition, in that they were evil. They were ungodly. The third way of describing the recipient is that they were disobedient. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this word sinners or disobedient is very similar to the word before it in verse 6, ungodly. But here we see even more so that these people, or as we'll see, we were directly disobeying the laws and the will of God. And the fourth way of describing the recipient is that they were hostile. Look with me at verse 10, Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his blood, by his life. So for if while we were enemies. So the fourth way of describing the recipient is that they were enemies or they were hostile. So not only were we or the Romans helpless or incapable. Not only were we evil and unworthy, not only disobedient and a transgressor, but God loved those. God showed his love for those who were his enemies. Enemies in that we opposed him and his ways. Speaking of the recipients of God's love, we see Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, sums up our condition nicely. If you look with me just a chapter, Two chapters ahead at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. This is explaining or describing sinners in general, but we can see we were in this state as well. Romans 3, 10 through 18 reads, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So as we think of the recipients of this love, as we think of how Paul presents to us the recipients of this act of love, I am telling you that each and every one of us was helpless, 
evil, disobedient, and hostile towards God. And if you have not believed in Jesus, then you are still in this condition against God. Second, so first we see the recipients of Christ's or God's magnificent love through Christ's death. And now, second, Paul presents to us the magnificence of God's love in Christ's death in speaking of the rarity of such an act. The rarity of such an act. Look with me at Romans 5, 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person would dare even to die. So Paul speaks of the abnormality of such an act. God showing his love for the helpless, the evil, the transgressor, and the hostile is not normal. In this verse, Paul makes the point here that with difficulty, one will die for someone who is morally upright, who's done no wrong, someone whom would find, we would find as worthy of having someone die for them. But possibly, Paul's saying that there's a slight chance that someone would die for a good person. And here we see the words righteous and good are synonymous. And Paul is making the point that we as humans naturally resist the idea of sacrificing our lives for someone else. But I think it's, it's helpful in trying to understand exactly what Paul's getting across to think of lesser degrees of sacrifice. Nowadays, or at least in the, the culture in which we live, often we don't see people literally dying for other people, but we might see sacrifice in lesser degrees. Thinking of sacrifice of your time, of your resources, of your finances, your efforts and energy, or even your comfortableness. How often do you resist sacrificing yourself in your everyday life for the sake of others, even those who are good to you and could be seen as worthy of your sacrifice? I think of a personal example. One day as I was driving home from college a few years ago, it was pouring down raining. And I was less than two minutes from the college, and I go past a man pulled over on the side of the road with a flat tire. And remember, it's pouring down raining. Immediately it crosses my mind, that guy doesn't have an umbrella. I considered pulling over, but then excuses came to mind. I don't know him, it could be awkward, and even I thought it could be unsafe, though it was in the daylight and on a busy street. So I continued on my drive without pulling over, and about a minute later, I circled back around through a neighborhood, convicted, and going back to see if I could help in any way or simply hold an umbrella for the guy. I pulled behind him and offered my umbrella, and he was basically done. He had basically finished the job of fixing his tire, and as, re as I reflected over this past event, I thought about how I didn't know this guy. He had done nothing wrong to me. He was essentially innocent as I knew of, yet I struggled to sacrifice myself for him. This act of God's love, sacrificing the life of his son, is rare. It's abnormal. It's unheard of in the day and age we live and in the day and age Paul lived. So we get the second way in which Paul presents God's love by showing its rarity. And third, the third way in which Paul presents to us the magnificence of God's love in Christ's death is in giving us the results of such an act. So we've seen the recipients, we've seen the rarity, and now we see the results of such an act. In Romans 5, 9 through 10, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So here we see Paul's giving two arguments. He's given two arguments for the results of Christ's death. The first of which is since we are justified, we can be sure that we will be saved from God's final or future judgment. As he says in Romans 5, 9, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we might question, what does Paul mean by this? And I'd say that first we need to understand and explain what justification is. So what is justification? Simply justification in this context is being declared righteous in the eyes of God. Again, justification is being declared righteous in the eyes of God. This is a new standing with God. As we had stood guilty before God, now we stand innocent before him. So how justification took place? Christ, who was sinless, who was perfect, righteous, sacrificed himself for us. And remember, as we saw, especially from the first point, the recipients of Christ's death, those that Christ died for, us, we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, far from righteous. And because of that condition that we were in, because of the sin that we had done, we deserved death. Death was our final punishment. We were guilty. But Christ took our place. Righteous Christ took our place dying for us so that we did not have to die. We then received his righteousness. Not that we are made sinless or perfect, but God looks upon us. He deals with us as he would Christ because Christ took our place. He took our deserved punishment, death. So this justification or this so justification is our current position before God. Because of the blood of Christ, we have a new standing with God, no longer guilty sinners deserving death, but righteous in the eyes of God. So in verse 9, Paul is arguing, since Christ did this act of justification to us while we were imperfect, we can have confidence that he will certainly save us in the future, since now we are justified. And we may ask, save from what? What will we save us from? Look with me at Romans 5, 9. It reads, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So God, being a just God, punishes sin. And this wrath of God is this final judgment that will be in the future. So the first result Paul gives of God's act of love is being justified, declared righteous because of Christ's death. And since we are justified when we were sinful, surely he will save us from this future judgment in this justified state. The second argument is found in verse 10. And the second argument of which is since we are reconciled, we can be sure that we will be saved by his life. Look with me at verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So to explain what this means, we first need to understand what reconciliation means. Simply, reconciliation is us and God coming back into relationship together. Again, reconciliation is us and God coming back into relationship together. 
It's the mending, it's the fixing of our relationship with God. And you may, you may ask, why did we need to be brought into relationship? The answer is given in the beginning of verse 10. For while we were enemies, so we were hostile towards God, so we needed to be back, brought back into relationship with him. Often, when I explain reconciliation, especially to the, the teenagers of our church, I give the illustration of a fight with siblings. But to put it, um, or for everyone's sake, think of having a disagreement or fight with someone that causes a break or a separation within a relationship that you have. Maybe it's a coworker at work that you stop talking to after a fight. Maybe it's a relative that you stopped hanging out with because of a disagreement. Or maybe it's a friend from school who lied to you and you retaliated by lying or telling lies about them. Either way, reconciliation would be when you mend that relationship. So that break in a relationship that you have with someone else, reconciliation is the bringing back together in to have a relationship. So maybe one of you apologizes and asks for forgiveness. Maybe one of you admits to their wrong and your relationship is healed and now can carry on as it was. And our reconciliation, so when we talk about reconciliation with God, our reconciliation is similar to that, but not the same. We became his enemies in that we were hostile towards him. We opposed him, but he, God, brought us back into relationship with himself through the death of his son, though he had done nothing wrong. We can have a relationship with him again, so unlike your human reconciliation where you both were in the wrong, here, only we were in the wrong. God was not in the wrong. But he is the one who ultimately mended this relationship, though he had never done anything in the first place to break it. So our current condition now is reconciled. So when we speak of the, rec the relationship that we have with God, it's no longer as enemies or hostile, but it's one of being reconciled. So Paul's argument is that if we are reconciled, now we had now we had been enemies, then surely God will save those whom he is in relationship with. So in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, we have encountered the magnificent act of God's love in Christ's death in that we have seen the recipients, helpless, evil, disobedient, and hostile. We've seen the rarity of such an act in that this is not natural for us as humans, and lastly, Paul has presented to us the results of such an act of God's love in that we are justified, we are reconciled, which ultimately promises us that we will be saved in the future from God's wrath. But if you look with me at our passage, as you look with me at our text at verse 11, we see Paul does not stop there. We see Paul does not only describe this magnificent act of love, but he actually instructs us in what our response should be. Look with me at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this rejoicing, this joy, is to be our response to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. This magnificent act of love, should, rejoicing, should be our response. And we saw this already in Romans 5, 1 through 5, specifically in verse 2 and 3, as it says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope 
in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. So we see this rejoicing has already been a theme in which God, I mean, Paul has given that we are to rejoice in God. So our response to such a magnificent act of love should be one of rejoicing. This is a joy that should be shown whenever and wherever we are. We can have it always, and no matter what, what, because the foundation of this joy is Christ's death on the cross. God's love does not change and will never go away. Unlike happiness in things of this world or temporal things, this joy in God's love to us in Christ's death is lasting. It's eternal. This is a joy that realizes how magnificent God's love is towards us. We were helpless, evil, disobedient, and hostile. It realizes how abnormal this love is, and it realizes the results of such an act. So I question us this morning. Does your life exhibit this joy? Does this joy consume your mind rejoicing and praising and thanking God for what he has done? Is this joy shown to others through your words, expressing how glad it makes you that you have been shown the greatest act of love? And may this joy uplift us in our sin, May it uplift us in our sorrow, realizing what we have gained by the death of Christ. So in conclusion, Christ's death was not pointless. Christ's death was not an accident. Christ's death was a display of God's love as we saw the magnificence of his act in this passage. By seeing the recipients of Christ's death, the rarity of such an act, and the results of Christ's death. And we saw our response is to be one of joy. Even as we partake in communion in a few moments, may this be our attitude towards the death of Christ, one of joy. May we reflect and marvel at this great act of God's love to us in the suffering, in the painful death of his son. So let us reflect over the love of God this morning, the magnificent act of love, and may our response be one of joy. Let us pray together. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, we specifically thank you for the gospel, for the gospel message that is thread throughout the whole of our Bible, the Old and the New Testament, speaking of your redemption, speaking of this plan in which you had, and Lord, we thank you for revealing that to us in your Son. Lord, we thank you for the love that you show us. As we saw this morning, it's undeserved, it's abnormal, and Lord, we see that it had great ramifications great results for us. And Lord, I pray as we go out into our world uh, this week, Lord, even as we partake in communion this morning, God, I pray that you would help our response to be one of joy. Lord, may you work within us and change our hearts to have a response of joy to your love, to Christ's death on the cross. God, we thank you for this passage and thank you for the challenge that we have this morning. And in your name I pray, amen. As we partake in communion this morning, I'd ask that